Hello, and welcome again to the Morbid Museum. We are your hosts, Katie Mead and Luke Boyd. And we continue to keep it spooky. (laughs) That didn't sound very spooky. (laughs) Super spooky. (laughs) Yeah, so scary I am. Uh, Luke, you have been really on your A-game spooking me. (laughs) So... (laughs) It sounds like you're going to continue to really upset me this week with uh, your topic. So why don't you just dive right in? Thank you so much. Uh, yes. Yeah, so today's discussion in our, our little episode here is on the Warrens, Ed and Lorraine Warren, famous ghost hunters, parapsychologists, demonologists, clairvoyants, all the above, and their lifetime of ghost hunting in and around northeastern United States and across the world and the creation of their spooky, morbid museum of their own, known as the Warren's Museum of the Occult. Horrifying. (laughs) Horrifying place. Horrifying. And this is a really fun topic. So the museum that still exists but is no longer functioning, which we love because we like to, we, we like to provide virtual experiences of places you cannot go or shouldn't Absolutely. go, really. Um, yeah, no. Don't go in don't there go regardless. There. <laughs> don't, you don't want to go there. Um, but a lot of people do. This museum is in Monroe, Connecticut. And I was raised in Connecticut. I grew up in Connecticut. And being that I am from there, the Warrens are a, a very special story to me in that I've known about them for a long time. Mm. And growing up in Connecticut, there were so, so many urban legends and haunted stories that were whispered around a campfire over a flashlight, you know, with friends on a spooky October evening. And I think if you grew up in Yankeedom or New England, you know, some of the older Puritan, English, Dutch settled states, New York included, of course, in the rural parts of these states, New Jersey, you know, as well. There's just so many haunted stories and they all oh, begin God, to, yeah. they all begin to rhyme at a certain point <laughs> and they blend with urban legends and myths. And it's part of growing up is trading these stories, understanding them. But there was something about the fact that the Warrens were from Connecticut. They were mm-hmm. they were planted in Connecticut. And so many of their huntings of hauntings were in Connecticut <laughs> that it, you know, gives me a sort of sense that Connecticut doesn't have much going for it. Right. But if it can lead the way in terms of spookiness <laughs> and scariness, uh, I think that's something that's a mantle that many of its um, citizens would uphold. It's true. Most members of the living think connecticut and they're like who cares but apparently ghosts are like hell yeah connecticut what's up (laughs) must be some kind of limestone deposit or something up in there um we don't know but in case you don't know ed and lorraine warren were pioneers of the modern ghost hunting movement their their exploits have inspired numerous films about haunted objects demonic possessions haunted houses their lives and their work represent an intersection between popular history, the stories we tell to each other, folklore, modern entertainment, and the perennial societal belief in the occult. And what's cool is that a lot of the threads of our previous episodes 
factor into this discussion, going back to the Amityville horror and going all the way through spiritualism. So there's a lot of callbacks and second and third beats to these stories. We'll be talking about some of the things that we've we've touched on briefly uh, with Brian Otonio weeks ago with Robert the Doll and others. So when we're talking about the occult, the word is often thrown around a lot, uh, but the occult refers to a belief or a understanding of the supernatural, the mystical, uh, magical beliefs, practices practices or phenomena, which is a huge, huge category. It's a huge, I mean, it means everything basically. <laughs> it does. Yeah. Anything outside the realm of the real or what yeah. we can measure. Tangible. And Ed and Lorraine Warren were the modern ambassadors for the occult. And I think what made them so popular was the packaging that they came in. So they were a lovely, lovely couple. They were just mm -hmm. two sweeties. They're both from Bridgeport, Connecticut. Bridgeport is a town that's in the lower uh, western section of Connecticut, in case you don't know. Lorraine and Ed both came from Bridgeport, and they were born in the 1920s. Um, Ed Warren apparently lived in a haunted house, so the story Ooh. goes, from the age of five through the age of 12. And I didn't know this until diving more deeply, but his middle name, is Warren. His last name is Miney or Myrnie, I believe. And that's his father's name. Oh. Apparently he, he and his father had a very contentious relationship. The father may have been abusive. Um, oh, okay. And as a young boy, Ed reported that a supernatural being was under his bed. And his father in great 1930s parlance said, you know, tough it out, stick it out, you know. And so apparently Ed waved a crucifix. Don't be a sissy. Don't be a sissy boy, Ed. Don't tell about no ghosts, Ed. And so Ed scared the ghost away with a crucifix. Good for you, baby Ed. <laughs> so the story goes. It definitely couldn't be that he had serious trauma from being abused. That's not what it was. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. He apparently served in the Navy as a young man. And oh. so there's some stories that contend that when he served in Asia, he was in a shipwreck and he was among the only survivors. This I have not quite sussed. Uh-huh. <laughs> This is a huge, is a huge alleged asterisk on all of this, sure. by the way. Like if I, if I forget to say alleged or purported or or it may have been, understand that the fact that the episode is on parapsychologists, yeah. you don't have to frame okay. anything. All right. We're, we're we're along for the ride here. You know, right. Yeah. I was you said he was in the Navy, and if he was born in 1920, I assume he then served in World War II. He did. He did. Okay. He did. And I believe he was stationed near Japan. Okay. So he was in the Pacific, in the Pacific, in the Asiatic. Um, in the theater. And <laughs> Churchill strikes again. So he returns from the war and he meets a young lady named Lorraine. And at the in 1945, Ed was working at a movie theater and he was an usher. And so he met this young lady at a movie and he offered to get her and her girlfriends cokes from a local soda fountain Ooh, want a coke cute. girls I'll... it's so cute it's so it's so american graffiti it's so idyllic and, it is yeah um and apparently the way lorraine tells the story well i didn't drink cokes so i'll i said i'll have a ice cream soda so she got an ice cream soda off ed and That's they were better they were, oh yeah so <laughs> and apparently at that moment ed said i knew in that moment she was a gold digger <laughs> Oh, 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 this is very Connecticut Yankee love story, you know. That's great. See, she said she wanted an ice cream soda, and I knew that. Um, Coke's not good enough for her. <laughs> she had to have root beer float. Yeah, exactly. 
the fuck she thinks she is. He's descended from the first families of Connecticut, the Puritans. <laughs> um, she can't have a Coke. And so they were married six years later, and they had one daughter named Judy. That's their mm. family story. So, you know, they were a nice little married couple. Ed was an artist. He was always interested in art, and he studied at the Perry School, which was a subsidiary school of Yale University. Oh. In New Haven. Let's say they're married in 1951. They found the New England Center of Psychic Research in 1952. Based on what? They came, they loved haunted, they loved haunted history. Okay. Ed, Ed had this backstory of this haunting, right? So it always was with him. Okay. And Lorraine was apparently a clairvoyant, meaning that she could receive messages or insights from objects or people um, about what has happened, right, in the past. Mm -hmm. So the two of them had these unique interests and or abilities, and they both were profoundly Catholic. Again, many of our visitors may not know, but the area of New England, New York today Think about the waves of immigration that come from the 19th century and beyond. Katie and myself, we are part of the Catholic tribe of, mm -hmm. of, of North America. So it's a very Catholic area. In Bridgeport, these towns are really Catholic. Waterbury, you know, where I'm from, yeah, Connecticut, yeah. really Catholic strongholds. So their Catholic faith grounds them in their research. So they see everything from this Catholic perspective. So whenever you're learning about the Warrens or seeing them in a film depicted, think of their Catholicism. That's always going to play a role in the story at some point. Yeah, it's how they battle. It's how they try to fix a situation. It's through the teachings of Catholicism. Yeah, it's a major tool in their belt. <laughs> yeah, um, in their kit. <laughs> in their kit, yeah. And so they would respond to alleged hauntings and demonic possessions around the area. And usually what they would do is they would drive around you know, in the new interstate highway system in Connecticut, well known for its lack of traffic. Just kidding. Um, <laughs> I was going to say. <laughs> nope. Now there's some humbug. <laughs> <laughs> Those highways are haunted with, with the spirits of so many up upset uh, drivers. Um, People just screaming in their screaming. cars. <laughs> you can hear the screaming to this day. And so they would drive around, they would drive around the state and they would go to a house that apparently had a haunted story. And mm. they would, you know, before they became really famous and they were like on demand as ghost hunters mm -hmm. they were kind of like trying to insert themselves in these in these places to try to understand what was going on so they would do this with this charm offensive which i thought was really adorable so <laughs> they would pull up to these houses and ed would get out his sketchbook and oh. he would like sketch the house right and then Ed and Lorraine would like walk up to the house and knock on the door and they would say, we'd like to give you this gift. Here is a sketch of your house. Is it true that there's unexplained phenomenon or hauntings happening in your house? You sneakies. Sometimes they'd bake a cake or they'd bring a loaf of bread or another sort of gift as a icebreaker. And they would sort of, you know, win over these unsuspecting neighbors and how and homeowners. And all of a sudden they'd be in the house and Lorraine would be, you know, walking around and trying to perceive and trying to feel. And, you know, Ed would be, you know, doing his thing as well in terms of investigating. What's the verb of clairvoyant? <laughs> like when you're being clairvoyant, like how do you do it? Do you... I'm clairvoying. I don't know. <laughs> no idea. <laughs> I'm vibing. I'm perceiving. I'm, I'm perceiving right now. Clairvoyanting. Yeah. Clair I'm, I'm, I'm on a clairvoyage. I'm voyanting. Yeah. I like that. Join us on this clairvoyage. On my clairvoyage. 
So what was really interesting too about the Warrens is that it wasn't just them. It could be very easy for us to debunk what the, whatever they said by saying, oh, it's their word against anybody's, or they're just you know upholding whatever story the homeowners are telling. But right. what was interesting about the Warrens is that they had this extended network. They always had a posse with them when they had these big investigations, and they would really ramp Ooh. up as the years go on, as they gained more followers. And so they enlisted the help of clergy. They had Catholic priests sort of on their retainer, which is so interesting. I think it was kind of like the priests were like, we don't know what to do with this. Like, so let the Warrens handle it. And if if I kind of want a day off from administering sacraments, I'll just join them on a ride, you know, it's <laughs> kind of strange. Um, or like, I've always heard about exorcisms. Maybe I'll share <laughs> one. <laughs> they had medical professionals like nurses and doctors and psychologists and counselors who would come with them. These they people had, are all doing this shit like just pro bono. Just yeah, that's the other ride. thing too. Is I do not know like when they visit a house forty five times. Like, is, is are they getting per diems? Like, who's paying them? Like, I don't, I don't know yeah. where. Well, we can speculate as to where the money is in the museum. Um, but <laughs> <laughs> another sort of exploits. So they have clergy, medical professionals, college students, always these college students, these interns, free labor, and they would apprentice and train other investigators who would become investigators in their own right. So they're really growing this movement from the ground up, and they often had law enforcement on the hook as well so they have cops they'd have, they'd have cops and other people like you know visiting detectives so you know when the warren's like yeah we're gonna come it's not just me and my wife and a camera it's this posse it's this crew we're gonna roll up and so people probably felt like this is legit how the hell did they get all these people on board it is incredible the a following that they that they have and still maintain to this day, which has been upheld by Hollywood. Um, yes, that helped a lot. Yeah, a lot. So, because they were really they were kind of obscure growing up, like they were a local legend, you know. Like, I was yeah, like, oh, yeah. And they they were connected to all these cases. So when you visit the museum, which of course we will do a virtual tour of, to the best of my ability, <laughs> there's so many other weird orgs and entities that they also established, or they renamed themselves like 45 times. So I mentioned the New England Center for Psychic Research, aka the New England School of Demonology, mm. a.k.a. the New England Paranormology Research Center. That's not a word. <laughs> <laughs> Stop it. So they, they rebrand and rename sort of constantly, it seems, before landing on various other uh, organizational monikers for themselves. So the Warrens took their mission on tour, and they were always doing talks doing lectures across the country. And in The Conjuring film, which we'll refer to several times, one of these lectures is depicted, a college lecture. And in fact, when I was a freshman at Eastern Connecticut State University in 2005, Lorraine Warren came to my college. No way. Mm -hmm. She spoke. You, you saw her speak? I did. I did. Oh, look, that's crazy. It was very cool. And so Ed was still alive, but his health was failing at the time. And it was mm. just Lorraine. And she's a delightful little old lady. She's bewigged. You know, she's sure. very she's very slight and she's very sincere. And she's got these really intense eyes. You know, she looks like her style sort of peaked in 1960. You know, you, you could tell she was a beehive chick. You know, she, yeah. she was always really pulled up and her face is kind of severe and very pointy. And she's got these eyes that were kind of slanted. And she was just, you know, she had a look. But she was very soft-spoken, and she's very religious and devout, and, uh. you know, she's very 
she's informational. She's giving us so much information, but she's also, everything is very cautious. Like, you know, she's talking to us young people and she's like, don't you go offending or challenging these entities. You know, you have to really be careful. You don't want to curse yourself. Spooky. Yeah. And so it was kind of interesting to see one half of that lecture circuit. Ed, I think, was really a magician when it came to the lectures. So I didn't get to see him speak. I've seen him speak in other films and stuff. And he had a really innate ability to, how do we say, pivot and rechannel mm. energy in an interaction. So he dealt with so many skeptics all the time. Right? He was he that's where he really shined. He was the he was the charismatic mouthpiece Mag- magnetic <laughs> figure yeah, yeah, yeah exactly yeah. and so he would say things to a skeptic like for example you know someone might say oh i don't believe in spirits and he would say well what you know what do you believe in and they would say i'm a christian and he would say well say the holy trinity and the person would say the father the son and the holy ghost or the holy spirit right and he would say well he'd say a third of your godhead is a spirit that you cannot see so how can you contend i mean technically you can't see any of them <laughs> <laughs> yes of course yeah flesh and bone yes but uh, but that was you know so they they had a they had a line for everything so the idea was like well if sure. you believe in a holy spirit could there be an unholy spirit you know so and so and again how do you you disprove that. So this is a- so. I mean, he definitely got a lot of his rhetoric and learning from the school of spiritualists. Yes, a hundred percent. It's the exact same shit we were talking about last week. And they're born into the last gasp of spiritualism. They are. I mean, even the fact that they named it a place of psychical research that they, they directly stole that from spiritualists. Absolutely. So, yeah. you know, we were talking about the thesis, the antithesis, the synthesis. Mm-hmm. They're just repackaging the same thing. Mm-hmm. The same thing is repeating and manifesting itself differently. So how fascinating that these threads are all kind of popping up here. Yeah. And that they actually got Catholicism on board. Yeah. I mean, the, the spiritualists- way couldn't seem to do exactly you know the, they had this claim that ed was one of you know the few men who who wasn't of the cloth who could do an exorcism they had all these exemptions and special statuses Crazy. you know and i think it was a large part due to their charm and their earnest sort of sensibility they didn't come off as con artists they didn't mm-hmm. come off as hucksters and the people who they served whether or not these people who were served were con artists themselves misunderstood suffering their own trauma or other such elements like we'll discuss Mental illness <laughs> yes they loved the warrens they were like these people saved our lives and mrs warren lorraine cared for and loved these kids and she could rattle off the names of everybody who was in the house that day in 1972 years later and what's wonderful about this folks is that so much content is out there in the world to experience the warrens lectures mm. discussions talks tours of the museum that they've led so a lot of this comes from that video archive what i think is important to discuss is how the hell did they actually investigate what were yeah. the tools what were the tools so besides their vessels themselves lorraine was something of a conduit you know she was like a medium she was a clairvoyant she was everything you know she's extending her spirit into the space she can feel everything but that's not enough we need something that's empirical so right Ed is really into photography, and he is always capturing, putting cameras, uh, live action stills, all this camera equipment into the house to investigate, to measure the paranormal activity. 
early ghost hunting equipment would have been used by them. And so we would be talking about things like EVP, electronic voice phenomenon, which we hear about a lot in ghost hunting shows. So all the ghost hunter shows, all the ghost hunting craze that we have right now goes right back to the warrants. They were the OGs in the modern movement. What I think is really cool about EVP, and I think Brian talked about this during Amityville, was that the big dig against EVP. So EVP is measuring electronic voice. So you're basically, if you think about your room may have some kind of static noise or white noise, and it could be your laptop. It could be your clock. It could be the radiator. It could be a number of things. And the EVP is more sensitive than the human ear and it can pick up all this other electronic noise. Right. And, And that data is then used to interpret to say, Oh, we can hear the ghost of Johnny, Bertha, Devil, whomever. <laughs> well, like, well, like we said last week, you know, apparently you can only hear ghosts if they're playing the trumpets. <laughs> <laughs> yes, exactly, exactly. <laughs> yeah, very t- quiet, right? Because right, because it goes from rappings and tappings, which is too obvious and easily debunked, right? But, then, but now it's like, well, let me get this special little microphone mm-hmm. and let me play this little thing back. And didn't you hear it say, "Get out, get out"? You know, so that's what that is. But the critics of EVP. The main issue they have with it is the uh, psychological phenomenon of pareidolia. Mm. The idea that we as humans are always interpreting or trying to interpret a meaningful image or a sound from ambiguous, random patterns of stimulus. So okay. a, yep. a, great, a great example of pareidolia is seeing a face in a tree when it's uh, like a knot and two notches. You know, Katie, we've encountered this before in terms of like when people see something like a spiritual apparition, yes. you know, maybe they see the face of the Virgin Mary in a piece of bread. You know, this could be something. I like, did, Luke. <laughs> that, grilled cheese, that grilled cheese is still in my freezer. She there, <laughs> that ham and Gruyere sandwich from 2007. Um, Sweet Mary, mother of mozzarella. <laughs> Pray for us, dinners. So I just love, I love that idea of pareidolia because don't we do that all the time? Absolutely. I, I get scared of the dark all the time. I see shadows and movements and, oh, it's just, you know, it's happening. And it's so funny that you put a name to it because as we were talking, I was just thinking anytime I've watched like a ghost hunter show or someone plays an EVP and they're like, did you hear that? Did you hear the ghost said, I'm here? And I'm like, no, 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 I didn't. Not at <laughs> I all. didn't hear that at all. <laughs> Not at all. Right. And you make me feel bad because, you know, I haven't been able to hear the Holy Spirit since I was four either. Okay. Like <laughs> I never heard it. I didn't hear it when I was four either. I never heard yeah, it. Yeah. So, and there is, again, we've talked about it a bunch in last week too, that power of suggestion and the willingness mm-hmm. to be in a place of suggestibility. Yeah. Right. So, but that's so interesting that they have a name for it. I didn't know that. I love it. And I do too, yeah. I yeah, can't wait to use it in a cocktail party. Uh, <laughs> can't wait. No can't f- wait to ruin a cocktail party. With cocktail that. party with just you and me because I have no friends. <laughs> so exciting. So just uh, right now. It's right now. Yeah. Right it's, now. All right. <laughs> um, <laughs> so, you know, like we were saying moments ago, they're combining the technology with the spiritual with the Catholic faith. They are very interested in blessing themselves, saying prayers, you know, using holy water to bless or sanctify an object. 
So it's a perfect synthesis of the spiritualists because yeah. the spiritualists sort of <gasps> act. Looks like just went out. <gasps> My battery is cursed. Robert, turn it back on. <laughs> Stop it. Do not talk do not, about him. We're not, not talking about him anymore. Do not challenge him. Do, do, do. I, okay. I didn't. <laughs> So um, my favorite thing that Ed would say is, so he Ed is so proud of his photography. And most of the critics out there are like, this is such bullshit. Oh, no. I don't, of, I've never really looked at much of his stuff. His photography, it's well, and you, you haven't seen it for a reason because it's not very compelling. Oh. Um, how many of us, and this is, I think, because also photography is so much more widespread now. And how many of us have taken a photo of something and we see like, oh, it's got orbs in it. Right. It's like ghosts. That's what it's all it's it's orbs. And he calls them ghost globules. Ew. <laughs> like <laughs> ghost boogers? <laughs> I just thought it was cute, like globules. I don't know. I didn't think of boogers, but um, <laughs> that's what I think. <laughs> like a ghost like sneezed on this camera lens. <laughs> <laughs> ghost not. <laughs> um so yeah they, they show you these photos of the ghost globules and they're like they're so thrilled they're like can you see can you see oh my god and i'm like yeah it was clearly raining that day uh, clearly because they're not doing photoshop they're not doing really they're not manipulating. no that's not an option no they're just they're just showing lights and shapes and they're trying to yeah. say that it that it supports what they're saying. And but and of course they're not doing even the really shitty thing that you know Mumler did with the ghost photography. They're not right. doing double exposure either. No, they don't seem to be doing any like high-end huckstering. Okay. They're just saying, like, you know, whatever they capture is proof positive of what they're trying to find. Uh -huh. And and they're finding anything and everything. They they have such a sure. wide net uh, in terms of who they're what they're trying to hunt. Over the decades of their activity, 50 years they were active. You know, so crazy, amazing long career. And so what they would do is as portrayed in the film, The Conjuring and others, they would remove so-called haunted objects from the houses of the afflicted, their clients, if you were, and they would store them at their house. It's so wild wild it's, decision <laughs> it's so strange so and in the movies and in in their interviews in real life you know they profess that they don't have fear they're not interested in being haunted you know they're they're mm -hmm. not they're, they're human and and they know that uh, and they want to say these incantations and prayers to defend themselves and guard themselves and don't challenge the stuff but let's bring it into our home like poor yeah. poor judy that young girl <laughs> <laughs> It's like, where's my doll? Oh, I'll play with other doll. Oh no, don't touch that doll. <laughs> don't touch that doll. <laughs> <laughs> so they are amassing all this stuff in their house. And their justification for this is that these things are vessels. These evil items cannot be allowed to infect other people with psychic energy. So uh -huh. we, we must guard them. We must put them here. It's kind of like, you know, it's like these Titans being locked up by right. Zeus, you know, yeah. like, put them in the earth and lock them up. And then, you know, let's pray they never get out. Um, that's sort of the idea. But why? I guess the question. Is so many like, questions. I mean, the questions are endless, but yes. one of them is how could they possibly keep themselves safe? How can you protect the world from the things that are in your raised ranch house? I do not understand <laughs> Right, unless you live in Fort Knox, is it a lead-lined house? Yeah, it's like I'm pretty sure because in some of these cases, we're not just talking about some like pissy ghost. We're talking about demonic forces. I'm pretty sure the devil is stronger than the plaster. <laughs> 
<laughs> the wall of your spare Correct. room. <laughs> right. And by putting like items together, are we not magnifying that power? Yeah. <laughs> and then we're inviting people to visit? So that these evil <laughs> spirits and ghosties and stuff can latch on to whoever right. comes next. It's the same paradox. At the end of the of... goddamn haunted house mansion ride in exactly. Disney World. It's the same paradox of the nameless doll in Fort Martello. You know, it's the same problem. <laughs> you must not be named. Yes. Thank you. <laughs> and their house is in Monroe, Connecticut, which is in the um, lower western area as well, north of Bridgeport, a little more in the hills. Spent many, many years. Uh, I know. You my spent, in-laws there. You were right there. And I had no idea that this was there because I, as you well know, I've created a very strong blind spot for things like this in my life because I just need to sleep. Yeah. But yeah, no, I really, I didn't know that that's where all this stuff was. Not Isn't that, that I would have gone. No, and Monroe's a very unassuming little town. Oh my God, it's so boring. <laughs> so boring. We, we never had anything to do. Yeah, there's, we a, there. there's 168 towns in Connecticut. I mean, you know, they can't all be Rembrandts. Um, <laughs> they can't all be Stars Hollow. Actually, none of them are Stars Hollow. Let me just debunk that right now for y'all. As a lifelong Connecticut, Connecticuter, nutmegger, I don't want to hear nothing about no Gilmore Girls. Okay? That's, that's, that is, that's not real. <laughs> Ooh, there's some pain there. There's, I you know, hear some pain behind I'm a, those. I'm words. a proud, I'm a proud nutmegger. You know, to see my beloved provision state reduced to the Gilmore Girls this is just, you know, I love it. I love Edward Herman, R.I.P. But the rest can go scratch. Anyway, um, so I have a quote from a lovely shady professor who love a shady professor who is hating on the Warrens Museum. So uh, Joseph Laycock, who worked at Texas State University as a professor of religious studies, mm. says that most skeptics have dismissed the Warrens Museum as full of off the shelf Halloween junk, dolls <gasps> or toys, books you could buy at any bookstore. Ooh. And delving a little more deeply into their collection, y'all, I can't disagree with uh, Professor Laycock. Really? That's yeah. Some, that's some serious... Sade. Yeah, for real. Yeah, and, you know, they're not museologists. They're demonologists, so, you know. <laughs> Are they yeah, <laughs> that? Self-professed. <laughs> um, so, of course... We have to talk a little bit about some of the notable investigations of the Warrens because this would of be an, this do. could be an exhaustive twelve part series. We also um, have to, you know, really give hats off to the people who cast the movies by making incredibly hot people play the <laughs> incredibly not hot Warren. <laughs> yeah, Patrick Wilson and Vera Farmiga. As they are beautiful people. They're gorgeous. Yes. They're gorgeous. And they're so compelling. They're great and in the movie. They're they really so are. good in the movies. They're yeah. phenomenal. So the whole Conjuring universe is like the rebirth of the Warrens in film, which is so amazing. So let's try to go through time. First, we start with the same girl we've talked about before, Annabelle. Ugh. As we talked about in the... <laughs> episode 17 let's just call it episode 17 gobbledygook um, so, 
so Annabelle, of course, as we know, is a Raggedy Ann doll, a big, oversized, large doll that was given to a nurse, an adult nurse, strange, in Hartford, Connecticut, given it to her in 1970. And the nurse and her roommate say the doll moved on its own right. and apparently attacked one of the owner's friends. Right. And the Warrens are called in to investigate. So now it's almost 20 years since they founded their institute. And they're they're growing. They're definitely they well experts in the field by now. They're well-known in Connecticut. They're looking for some objects for their museum. Uh, and so they're called in and they determined, okay, this is so crazy. So first, again, depends on where you read, depends on when you're hearing the Warrens talk about it because uh -huh. the story changes. Okay. So, yeah. So the first thought is that Annabelle Higgins, who was a young lady who apparently was killed in an auto vehicular accident near the house in Hartford where the nurse lived, was inhabiting the spirit of the doll. Mm. But then Ed Warren says, because he knows this is indisputable fact that, well, the spirit of a child cannot enter an object. Yeah, so, duh. Everybody I mean, fucking knows that. Obviously. So he says that. <laughs> what are you stupid? So rather, get this, it's it's still Annabelle, but it's a demonic spirit that's possessed Annabelle, uh, that, that's possessing the doll that's impersonating the girl Annabelle. <laughs> Come on, bro. So many layers. And Annabelle must have been like a bad girl. <laughs> yeah, apparently Annabelle was a piece of shit. And like, why does he be so meta? Why do you need to like, why do you need to be, you know, inhabiting this doll, impersonating a dead girl? Like, what? Why, why does that have to be so convoluted? Why is that very be so... like Victor Victoria layers of complexity? <laughs> It is. It's like a Greek, like Aeschylus, like play. Like you're in drag. You're you're a courtesan. You're this. You're that. So a dude disguises a dude playing another dude. <laughs> yes, it is Tropic Thunder. <laughs> it is that which which can be done very well. Professor Laycock calls the Annabelle legend an interesting case study in the relationship between pop culture and paranormal folklore. So he speculates that the demonic doll trope popularized by Chucky. Child's Play, another movie, Dolly Dearest, which I haven't seen. Oh, oh. <laughs> right off the bat, I'm, I'm not liking that. <laughs> and The Conjuring likely emerged from the legend surrounding Robert the Doll. And a Twilight Zone episode released in 1965. This episode is called The Living Doll. And in that episode, the character of the mother is named Annabelle. Oh, that's weird. It's such a scary show, and it's so oh, well yeah. done. You know, um, Serling was so ahead of his time. And it's interesting, too, that the Twilight Zone appears in this suggestibility environment. Yes. And so Professor Laycock is saying that the idea of a demonically possessed doll allows modern demonologists to find supernatural evil in the most banal and domestic of places. Mm. And that's exactly what we were talking about, the universality of having a doll. It's yeah. That's the insidious nature of, like, your doll could be haunted. Any household object, you identify it as evil, and people everyone sees that could happen to me. You know, mm -hmm. everyone, most of us, our generation notwithstanding, well, are going to buy a house. And we're going to be new That's home. adorable that you think that. <laughs> we're going to be, exactly, our generation not happening, anybody born before yeah. us. Uh, so when you buy a house, you know, you've, you've seen the movie and you think, what if, what if, what if? Oh, it absolutely. It's, I always think about that whenever I move have somewhere new. Yeah. sad little fantasies that maybe I'll buy a house someday. I have had friends who've like gone to houses where there had been a suicide or a murder and mm -hmm. my immediate response is hell 
to the fucking no. Right. And they were like, I don't know. The price is pretty good <laughs> in this market, man. And that's how, they, the ghost. that's how they get you. Yeah. We don't hear about the happy hauntings enough. No. No, we don't. No, one, no one writes those books. Another famous story of the Warrens, of course, is the Perrin family in Harrisville, Rhode Island. This, of course, is the story of the Conjuring movie. Yes. In this house, the legend states that a woman killed herself and her child. In 1974, the Warrens investigated the home several times to find that, yes, it was in fact haunted. But the most famous case that catapulted them to the international stage of ghost hunting was the Amityville Horror, yes. as we discussed at length. The horror. Um, the horror of it all. And so, you know, Brian did a great job of breaking down the hoax of Amityville. One of the reasons that the story really caught on as much as it did is because the Warrens said it was real. The Warrens mm -hmm. came in and they upheld the Lutz's story. And they had a lot of credibility already at that they point, They had right? a lot of credibility, and society was hungry for this, right? Again, the, mm -hmm. the movies, The Exorcist, and all these media tent poles, they're just feeding into that. So Hollywood's spiritualism, you could argue, you know, sort of supplanted the old spiritualism and made yeah. believers out of moviegoers. And spiritualism is, not no longer, is no longer a seance, but it's going to a scary movie and feeling that experience coming through the transom. So the Warrens talked about Amityville until they died. You know, Lorraine mm. said that it was as close as to hell that she thought she would ever come being inside that house. Woo. Mm -hmm. And I mean, that, that room downstairs didn't sound great. <laughs> no. And in fact, I have a clip from an interview with <gasps> the great. Warrens. Yes. And what I like about it is that it dips into the experience of the ghost hunt there. Mm. And it also dips into Ed's ability to counteract skepticism through his lens. I went to the left and went in this room that was the sewing room. Right. And in that room, I looked at Marvin Scott and he told me just a year ago that he will never forget what I said to him. And that is, I hope this is as close to hell as I'll ever get. Wow. And in that room, is where Father Pecoraro was told by an unseen voice to get out. It's the room where the hundreds of flies were killed. That's all. He was also slapped in the face at that time. Yes. Which a lot of people don't know. They think that uh, the voice was the only thing he heard. After he heard the voice, he felt a physical slap in the face. He told me this himself. He repeated it to reporters. It's on official file. There's no two ways about it. No. People have said there never was a Father Pecoraro. And we couldn't even mention his name no. for the first two years wow. until we got permission to do it. Now, a lot of people out there have heard <clears throat> the Amityville horror is a hoax. Why do you think that is? Because the atheists want you to think it's a hoax. They don't want anyone out there to believe for one second that a home like in Amityville could be haunted by diabolical forces, which it was. Their aim is to kill any belief that you have. Mm -hmm. Because if you believe that there's such a place as Amityville and a horror that was in that home, you might believe in a supernatural God. Right. They don't want that. No. You might believe in a devil. They don't want that either because a skeptical public is the best protection that devils have. And devils do exist. Mm -hmm. Demons do exist. And 25 years ago, just like I in Bridgeport, Connecticut, 
when we went in on the Lindley Street case, a 966 Lindley, I offered a $3,000 reward to anybody, and I'm offering it again, anybody out there that can come to me and prove, the first person comes to me and proves that the uh, case in, on Lindley Street was a hoax. I'll give them $3,000. And he goes on and on. Wow. About his $3,000 award. So he is, he flips it and reverses it. Yes. Where he's saying, you're the ones perpetuating the fraud because you don't want to believe in things, you atheists. Correct. The devil has already seduced you. What a great technique. He was That's smart. He was good. He was very good. Good That's at flipping smart. it around. And the whole thing is, you know, the Catholic Church is liking him because he's he's proselytizing. The ca Catholicism 1000% believes in the devil yes. and demons. It's a thing in the church. It's yes. so it's, it's crazy. It's intense. And you get a sense also of just how they weave a story. And, mm -hmm. you know, there are, you know, Father Pecorara. Yeah. How, how do you spell that? I don't even know. Father Pecorino, you know, I mean, it's just like, <laughs> yes, I am, all I could think of was the cheese. The whole time. <laughs> and their accents are like so Connecticut. They're like, oh, they're yeah, like, they so really deep. are. Those are ours. Um, yeah. And it just gives you a sense of also they've told these stories a thousand times mm -hmm. and, you know, so-and-so got thrown. This happened to so-and-so. They got cuts beneath their shirt and blood came through, you know, and it's scary. It's very scary. And their experience is the evidence to them, you know, so. I liked the interviewer, too, being like, wow. <laughs> wow. Oh, my gosh. <sighs> and, and the interviewer is a guy named Tony Spera, who is married to their daughter. He's their son-in-law. <laughs> So Nothing the whole like unbiased journalism. Yeah, welcome to this. You know, and these videos are like public access, like interviews, <laughs> and you you just like, like we're on Wayne's World. Yeah, you just see, <laughs> yeah, it's a black backdrop. You just see them like aging through time, like because they and they keep using the same like little orange like sign, like good paranormal night with the Warrens, you know, and they're just like crunching like as the decades go by and <laughs> telling their stories. Um, you know, and if you remember the late great James Randi, a wonderful magician who was like, you know, a Harry Houdini or a Penn and Teller, very mm -hmm. much anti-spiritualist and paranormal. Yes. Um, he offered a million dollar reward to anybody who could prove that their magical or scientific or psychic abilities were real and famously took on someone like Uri Geller. And this $3,000 reward to try to disprove the the hoax, you know, just doesn't really ring the same way. Um, no. And the skeptics have been after the Warrens for for a long time. Of course. Um, and the Lutz story, as we know, under the leadership of our first guest, Brian, uh, is, is largely regarded today as a hoax um, yeah. for so many reasons. And unfortunately, you know, or whatever, whatever, fortunately, many yeah. of these stories have been debunked over time. Um, another big one is the Snedeker house, the haunting in Connecticut. This one hit home with me because this was two towns over from where I grew up in Southington, Connecticut. And mm. this was a huge story growing up before the movie came out that this family in the eighties moves into this house that was formerly a uh, mortuary, uh, a funeral home, which 
what are you doing? What's up with that? <laughs> and, you, you know, <laughs> and in the movie, it's set in this like spooky, the movie, The Haunting Connecticut, it's set in this like, you know, windswept perpetual autumn, like no man's land. The street is packed with houses in real life. <laughs> There's houses every 10 feet. And, you know, what's interesting about that house, the Snedeker house, is that it has like a really long driveway and like a parking lot in the back because it was a freaking funeral home. Um, right. That was right. just out of somebody's house. And so the the Snedeker family moves into the house in 1986, and they immediately are assaulted by all sorts of terrible images, assaults, apparitions. They're literally being assaulted, right? Like yeah, there was sexual be- assaults, apparently. Because um, I never watched the movie, mm-hmm. but years ago, probably on like the Travel Channel or whatever, they had... A, a special called a, ha- a haunting in Georgia, a haunting, yes. here. and they did a yes. haunting in Connecticut one. And so I watched like a portion of it before I was officially like pissing my pants and was like, all right, I'm out. Bye bye. <laughs> I'm just done. Yeah. And I mean, the house had, uh, it had a medical gurney. It had blood drains. It had toe tags. It had apparatus for coffins. It's it a was a perfect place. If haunting is real, that's a place that gets haunted. Terribly scary. And so, yeah. of course, their oldest son was undergoing treatments for Hodgkin's disease. Um, mm-hmm. In in the movie, they call the town Goatswood. Just why? 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 Like, that's like Stars Hollow. Why make up names for places that don't exist? Why can't you call the real name of the place? <laughs> <laughs> we need the tourism. It's Connecticut for fuck's sake. This is the sub-theme. You know, I'm just like... <laughs> Give it a real name. It has a real name. It has a tax base. It needs help. <laughs> uh, so the Warrens are called in. And this is in the 80s now. So they're like, you know, they're cruising. They're in the golden age mm-hmm. of their d- demonology. Um, and they investigate the house and they proclaim that it's possessed. And they're just finding these houses everywhere. Mm. Um, it becomes a huge media frenzy. Um, but eventually other facts emerge. And the son who suffered from Hodgkin's disease also had a drug habit. And was diagnosed with schizophrenia. This poor guy. Oh, dear. Yeah. So we know that, you know, various hallucinations and other auditory uh, phenomenon can be associated with schizophrenia, hearing voices such as that. This poor kid has Hodgkin's, a drug history, and schizophrenia. So one could argue that in a suggestible environment with a funeral parlor backdrop, all of these things were um, were baked in. And there was a neighbor who lived upstairs who didn't report a single damn thing in the house. <laughs> so there's stuff going on downstairs. <laughs> What's going on? Why am I seeing all these sirens? Who's this bitch with a beehive? What's going on? <laughs> <laughs> I keep seeing flashes of light. This photography at night. Yeah. These crazy pa- old couple are walking around the house blubbering all night. Amazing. So that, again, that story also very much debunked, but gains a lot of traction and popularity through the Haunting Connecticut film and all the various spinoffs. Yeah. Um, and then the Warrens go international. <laughs> Their international tour. Um, they visited Enfield. We're off on the road to <laughs> their little... Uh... Bob Hope, Big Crosby spinoff where they yeah, went all like, around the world. In a Jones montage where it's like flying over a map with like the red line yes! going from like and just like a montage of them like ghost hunting and like <gasps> sightseeing, taking a picture. So they Amazing. go to they go to London, England, apparent haunting that happened there, um, disembodied voices, furniture moving on its own, and the Warrens determined that it was demonic possession of the two teenage daughters in the home. And this, mm-hmm. of course, was the backdrop of the conjuring too. 
This whole thing is a Conjuring commercial. Um, <laughs> one of my favorites was their, uh, when they went to Japan. They explored the haunted tunnels of Japan. Okay. And so apparently in these tunnels where various temperature drops, you know, voices, you know, visions and things would happen these this terrorized public and apparently it was it was attributed to several different things all of which are just happening everywhere but also very localized to japan so apparently samurai spirits were unearthed yeah, in the creation crea daimyo and they were unearthed in the creation of the tunnels so they were pissed and then there were mass burials of cholera patients that were Ooh. also disturbed in the tunnels and even the victims of the atomic bombs of 1945. So again, you just take a, a random sampling of the traumas of the area and you can attribute it to whatever. And, <laughs> and in this situation... That's yucky. In this situation. You know? Yeah, I know. It is. And in this situation... Well, the thing that's crazy is that because they're so warmly received and people are like, oh my gosh, the Warrens are here. And they seem coming, lovely, right? They're investigating. And now they have all these like Buddhist monks and priests who are doing chants and doing all of this, you know, and burning incense and doing all of these things. And so they're just like co-opting the local religion. So on the one hand, are they being sensitive to local religion by not casting their Catholicism? But they're, they're still doing their Catholicism. But they're just like, oh, we got we got some, you know, who's the local talent here in Japan? Oh, we got these Buddhist guys. Yeah, bring them in. Like, you know, it's just... Yeah, I guess that was my question is, are they still going to do, you know, an exorcism if need be? Or are they going to follow the local tradition yeah I don't it's know. bizarre so it's just a it's a it's a very ambiguous amorphous layer cake it, like i said in the beginning it's kind of like everything and, and, and anything yeah so there's really no rhyme or reason to it but they do have all these rules right about like the demons entering a doll and things like that ladies and gentlemen let's take a let's take a brief tour of the warren's occult museum in monroe connecticut in their home they lived in a simple house in connecticut they turned like the basement and addition into their home into this haunted museum once he started collecting stuff, Ed, he started getting gifts and all sorts of material from anybody and everybody, sending him haunted things, sending him creepy things, making mannequins, representing other creepy things. So the way the museum is built is there's like a reception area where you first enter. And in the reception area, this is like the Halloween retrospective. It's just like spooky stuff, like little fake gravestones and, you know, <laughs> the guy with a, with, a, with a scythe and like all these weird things. Because apparently Ed was a, a big lover of Halloween. I'm picturing currently at Target, there's this skeleton who plays a guitar and he's like, happy Halloween. So that's what I'm imagining. It's very party city. It's very just like silly and schlocky. Spirit of Halloween. I, yes. think it's, I think it's meant to like get you primed before you go in to see the real stuff. So, you know, when the Warrens were alive and they would give tours, they would, you know, they'd, they'd give you holy water so you could like bless yourself you'd like you know be encouraged to like pray or like prepare yourself and then you would go through what's called the haunted passageway aka mm. a hallway that leads <gasps> you to <laughs> the occult museum <laughs> and then you'd enter the, the bathroom on the left <laughs> 
Don't touch the water fountain. It's haunted. So you get into the museum and it's chock-a-block full of shit. It's just full of stuff. It's all black. Yeah, it's, it's not well organized. You know, nothing, nothing is like, there's no labels really that are useful. As far uh, as a museum goes, it's just failing. It's a, a curatorial museum. nightmare. It is. It's just a big storage closet of bric-a-brac of junk. And without the association of the demonic haunting, you just literally think it was a bunch of creepy looking weird stuff. Yeah, like this guy has problems. <laughs> it's just a horde. A horde that he, you know, says is a museum and charged $13 apparently to go. That's um, where the Colliers went wrong. <laughs> just started charging. Oh, oh, a deep cut. All right. I like this. This is good. <laughs> Yes, the war, all of the all of the Collier stuff actually went to a house in Bridgeport where Ed Warren <laughs> lived as a child, <laughs> and the two-headed baby haunted him under his bed. <laughs> Ew! Imagine being haunted by the Colliers under your bed with their oh. long toenails. Oh, oh. <laughs> Langley, are you there? I can't. I can't hear you. <laughs> sure, as oh. well, can't see you. Um, so. There are so many dark objects in this museum. And, you know, when you hear Ed and Lorraine talking about them, they're just, they're speaking about these items with such reverence and respect for their power, you know, and that we should not touch these objects. But the place is so tight. Like, I'm not a skinny guy. I would be really scared that I would brush up against something. Yeah. But how would you know if it wasn't just a schlocky mannequin or a or a decoration or something that like, you know, is imbued with the spirits of indigenous people? <laughs> like, you know, it's like so this whole experience is just ugh. there's one object in the museum called a conjuring mirror, which mm. apparently was used by a spiritualist in New Jersey. And so according to the Warrens, demons can reflect their image on a shiny surface. <sighs> So you can look into this mirror and see demons, spirits that have come before. So okay. again, it's not covered. It's just there. Annabelle's there. She's in a glass case. And of course, uh, Lorraine would say it's the worst thing in there. Um, she's very freaked out, it seems, by a lot of these things. She's like, you don't want to, you just don't want to get, you know, you got to protect yourself. Be careful, honey. Like, you know, when you're going into this museum. Why and would you let people in it's, if you are so afraid of these objects? You know. Of course, the mission, one could argue, is education, right? But you're capitalizing on the fear that has been monetized in How film. much are you charging for this education? <laughs> Just curious. It was, it was $13 a pup. A la, that like is not nothing to not go nothing. into a room. No. Not a museum, a room. Yeah, a very small museum, very cottage, you know, core sort of industry wow. here. Yeah. Uh, there are so many other – okay, so first of all, so we talked about this with the um, the Warrens claim – okay, because I didn't I didn't know the story of this. So they say that the Warrens always said, oh, Annabelle killed at least one person. So the Warrens claimed that a man who challenged the doll was killed by her. Like challenged her to a duel? Like what does that mean? Challenged like, like, her like, like threw her across the room saying, I don't believe in you, blah, 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 and then like was killed. And I'm like, did that happen here? Was somebody killed in your house? I need more information. Like yeah. what the hell? So then this just cavalierly like thrown around. Like, oh, he had lacerations. Oh, she was choked. Oh, her hair got pulled out. It's like just constant wow. death and Almost blood. Like it didn't happen at all. <laughs> it's... It's hard to follow, man. It's just, 
you know, I want to believe him, but like, you know, no, you don't. You're I, one of those atheists. I am. I am possessed by the devil. You're Winning. on the devil's side. This is the devil's podcast. So oh, I've read um, about you in the Malaeus Maleficarum. I know <laughs> all about you and your nest of dicks. Just call me Harry Splitfoot Truman, okay? <laughs> <laughs> there is an object in this museum, which I thought was so fascinating. So at one point in the tour, Ed pulls up this little piece of metal. And it's a piece of fuselage from an aircraft. Oh. And it's from a flight, flight 401 that crashed in the Florida Everglades shortly after takeoff in 1972, killing more than 100 people. It's awful. Now, awful. Eastern Airlines, which owned the aircraft, apparently the, the, the plane was salvageable enough that parts of the plane, allegedly, were reused in other aircraft. Okay. <laughs> with with what we know about the NTSB and you know the movies we've seen about those <laughs> those buttheads, I do not imagine they would have sanctioned this. But this was the seventies, um, so it the was idea, a wild time. It was a wild time. So and everyone so, was a serial killer. It was crazy. Yeah. So you <laughs> you can't they cannibalize this plane and parts of the plane end up in other planes, and that is that supports the concept that the pilot and co-pilot of Flight 401, their ghosts, were observed on other aircraft. So other pilots, stewardesses, flight attendants, staff, passengers would report seeing these individuals and others, the ghosts of Flight 401. Mm. And so the idea is that they're flying along with the plane, like when the landing gear gets taken from the broken plane. But just it, it, that, that defies logic. You know, what could be salvaged <laughs> from a broken plane? Why would you save anything from a broken plane? Like, it can't be that. If it's a broken plane, maybe you shouldn't use the bar. <laughs> Correct. Correct. Okay, you may now open your email that I sent you with some images. Ugh, I was told I have to look at things now. Unfortunately, I, I made Katie deal with some visual aids in our museum education program. Oh, ew. Ah! <laughs> <laughs> what is that? So, that. Katie has just given you a live reaction to a satanic idol that Oh my god. That looks like an alien. He does, yeah. And it is a figure that is over six feet tall. And he has... also looks like he's giving like <laughs> the rocks eyebrow. <laughs> <laughs> he has a very extreme expression on his face. And he's got these two triangular horns coming off the top of his head. He is scary. This is spooky. So, and I've seen this figure in so many of the depictions of the museum. And I was like, what is this thing? So this satanic idol was found in Sandy Hook, AKA Newtown, Connecticut. Oh, no shit. When? Which we know dark things happen there. This was found most likely in the 70s. Okay. Um, and it belonged, apparently, according to the Warrens, to a, a group of Satanists who lived in the area. The idol was found in a stone grotto where human sacrifices were allegedly performed, or most likely animal sacrifices, if we're being real here. Um, yeah. When Lorraine encountered the idol, she apparently was thrown 25 feet and Ooh. was in a catatonic state. For three days. Yeah. This, this poor woman, you know, just keeps getting up, coming back to it, you know. She's, she's on a mission. <laughs> there she's is resilient. I'll give her she that. She is resilient. She's, there is a mannequin of Hannah Crana, not related to horrible Hannah, um, mm. who is known as the Wicked Witch of Monroe, and just a mannequin of her. So she apparently was this woman who lived in the 19th century. Is she this would, the other picture? 
No, this is another one. I'm about okay. To I yeah, I haven't looked at the other picture. That's yet. good. Okay. Yeah, there's a man. There's like a lot of mannequins. And again, we've talked about this before. Like in the 1970s, yeah. mannequins were really hot in museums. For like a living history museum, you have a blacksmith who's making who's making a blacksmith product. But maybe you do, you don't have a blacksmith person. You have a blacksmith forge, and so you make a mannequin of a blacksmith, and then you have an interpretive a vignette that you can use to you know show something about history. Yeah, so, they're scary and terrible. They're <laughs> scary. They're terrible. They don't age well. They collect dust. Ooh. They look creepy. They're lumpy. The, the clothes never look right. So they, of course, in the Warren's Museum, there's mannequins up the gig. There's so many mannequins. Mm. Um, so Hannah Crana was a real witch. <laughs> great name. <laughs> of a great name. And she would apparently insist that her neighbors give her free food and firewood. And if they didn't comply, she would threaten to curse them. <laughs> And various, uh, and various other <laughs> non-witchy things are associated with her. Like, she just sounds like she was a bitch. Like, she was a shrew. She was... If you don't trim my hedges, <laughs> I'm gonna get you. I'm Hannah Crane. But it goes on and on and on. This is a really fun one. So they have a book in the museum called The Necronomicon. Mm. And The Necronomicon, as the name suggests, is a book of the dead or a book of shadows. And Ed is talking about the book like, you can't touch this book. Don't touch this. Dude, don't. Don't go near the book. It's really bad. Touch the book. What'd I say? You touch holy it? water, holy water. So looking at it a little more closely, going back to what Professor Laycock said about books you can buy in a bookstore. So H.P. Lovecraft, the great gothic writer of horror in the early 20th century in many of his stories he mentions a necronomicon and the necronomicon is a made-up ancient grimoire basically a spell book that he makes up in his stories and he's alleging in his fictitious book not trying to say it's real that it's like thousands of years old and it was written in the middle east um and then in the 1970s these new age weirdos claim the necronomicon is real and they publish a real necronomicon and that's the book they have in their museum it's not a museum object it's a mass-produced book by simon and schuster in 1970 so it's so embarrassing it's it's crazy. And it's, you know, it's without any shade, like the early translations of the Book of Mormon. Like, I've discovered this text. Who did? I did. How? I just found it. And it's here it is. And, and I yeah. did it. What I do did you, it. Why do you need details? Yeah. And these three guys said I did it. So I did it. And so it's all about spiritual transformation. And it's this terrible, mystical book. And you shouldn't read it, but you can get it on Amazon. So go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> so it's like a Malayas, but it's not based on anything and you know it's like i remember like at 2 a.m you'd see these like infomercials for like the lost book of joseph like these weird books of the bible these guys would say they found in the sand in like syria you know i've translated and people are always hungering for this like unforgotten text um so the necronomicon is one of those there apparently is an organ that can play on its own a pipe organ which is creepy um yes lots of other dolls (laughs) lots of voodoo dolls and there is also the Doll of Shadows, which is the second picture I sent to you. Okay, let me look at that one. Ooh, I don't care for that at all. <laughs> what? So what? The, the Doll of Shadows is a doll that is made from human bones, hair, oh my God. animal parts, and it's got a big old human tooth coming out of its mouth, like a buck tooth. That's a human tooth? Mm-hmm. Alleg- allegedly. So I'm according deleting, according I'm deleting this email right immediately, now. immediately. <laughs> no subject email I sent you in the middle of the night. Um, so apparently this doll would be used to by a sorcerer, which you know now the the now the warrant are saying there's sorcerers and wizards, sure. and they're saying that yeah, this doll would be used to to curse you. It could curse you by mail. 
even what? like yeah like they the mail isn't even safe yeah the sorcerer could write a letter and like you know the doll could like lick it and like then it'll be cursed like i don't know it's bizarre and this was like an item found in an antique sh shop so not something that was given to them by haunted people so they're mm. just hoarding they're taking anything from anybody and just saying sure 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 yeah yeah, yeah. We'll, we'll take it we'll take it we'll take it yes, yes, yes. do you think they got really freaked out once the internet came to be with like chain letters and stuff like chain oh they would have been all over chain letters <laughs> they, you know lorraine if you were on lorraine's like listserv you would have gotten some of those for sure <sighs> i pray that the lord delivers you from this curse and you send this <laughs> to five more friends <laughs> I did hear of this one woman who didn't send this email right away. <laughs> and she got lacerations all over her face. <laughs> <laughs> so what's really sweet, if you can think of it that way, is there's this priest who would come to the museum every day and he would pray and do blessings all over the museum to maintain the spiritual goodness of the space. That's so nice. And he would do it in circumambulation. He would walk around in a circle. In one of the video tours of the museum, Tony Spera and Ed Warren are talking about how they would never come here after nine o'clock at night. Uh -huh. And I'm like, okay, where are we going with this? And of course, according to Ed, 9 p.m. to 6 a.m. are the psychic hours. So oh. you can't visit then. <laughs> okay. <laughs> It's just so bizarre, like the psychic hours, like, okay. The, 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 the thing you, you just made up. Yeah, yeah, right. When you're sleeping, when the museum can't possibly function, sure. It's, it's closed because it's the, it's the demon hours, you can't count. It's not because I went to bed. <laughs> it's not because I'm sleepy. Right, so stupid. Eventually, the museum would be forced to close, mainly due to zoning issues. So Ed passes away in 2006, and Lorraine passes away in 2019 in her 90s. And the museum never, re never reopened in, their, in her lifetime. So Tony Spera maintains the property today. He's their son-in-law. What I thought was interesting, going back to the idea of like, what's happening to the demonic energy if we're to believe in this? <laughs> Tony Spera admits in one of the videos that, oh, we only bless the museum once a month now. Oh my God. Oh, are you crazy? What's going on? Why? You, what, what happened? Not okay. Not okay. Not okay. So a lot of skeptics have interviewed the Warrens. They've gone in on them in a 1997 interview with the Connecticut Post. These two investigators for the New England Skeptical Society, the NESS, they say- <laughs> I want to be a member of that society. Yeah. I'm skeptical. Just in, just in general. Just like- a real punchy group for skeptical sure skeptical about everything yeah new england skeptics you know they're they're tough Ooh, um, they, those are some hardened people yes they said they found the warrens to be a pleasant couple but their claims of demons and ghosts were at best tellers of meaningless ghost stories and at worst uh -huh. dangerous frauds Ooh. And they took the $13 tour and looked at all the evidence the Warrens had for spirits and ghosts. They watched the videos and looked at all the evidence that the Warrens had collected. And their conclusion was, in their lexicon, was, it's all Blarney. 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 Yeah, they found common errors with flash photography, like overexposures uh -huh. and things like that. Um, uh -huh. Nothing evil in the artifacts the Warrens had collected. They had a lot of fish stories without evidence that got away. They're not doing good scientific investigation. They have a predetermined conclusion, which you're not supposed to do in scientific <laughs> research. Right, right, right. And they're adhering to it literally and religiously. The idea with these skeptics is that you can't base these things on God. That's, of course, the skept you're going to lose the skeptics immediately. But, of course, the Warrens would counter. The skeptics are allied with the atheists who are allied with the devil. Yeah, and so basically, you would say that. 
Yeah, they're saying demonology research, but the research is based on spiritual belief um, and perception. So none yeah. of it, none of it really adds up. You can't be a demonologist and not also be religious. Correct. <laughs> Correct. So it's flawed. So, yeah. ladies and gentlemen, you can explore the uh, occult museum of the Warrens via many, many. They were very prolific videographers in their time with Tony Spera. There's a wonderful blog that I've been following for a long time called Damned Connecticut. And oh, that's great. It's a great blog. And the the writers there go to crazy, forgotten Connecticut places. And of course, they went to the Warren's Occult Museum. Conjuring Movie, of course, has so many featurettes and interviews with Lorraine when she was still alive. So many different articles you can read to explore this further. And of course, the website for the Warren's organization is now TonySparrow.com. Oh, really? Yeah. So it's Tony's <laughs> career that you're investing in when, you know, he does open the house up occasionally. They're supposed to be able to rectify the zoning issue at some point in the fullness of time. They want to reopen the museum. They want to get. Okay. So stay tuned. They want to get it going. So right now it's inert. Right now it's a quiet. It's still being blessed. But <laughs> should you, should you want to Not go, enough. <laughs> You know, most of us would would probably not go to a place like this, and so we hope that this short, albeit you know, brief tour of the Warren's Occult Museum does satisfy you and give you a little sense of the spooktacular uh, life of the Warrens. Wow, what a great look back on a life lived very bizarrely. <laughs> yeah, they just ran with it. Yeah, I mean, this is what it comes down to for me also. You know, I mentioned last week, and I will be talking about him again a lot next week, uh, Arthur Conan Doyle being a really fervent believer in spiritualism. Like, I really wonder how much they believed in it, you know? Right, when their like, head, they... head hit the pillow, yeah. Yeah, like, was this always just a really long con? That Because that's a long time to live in a con, you know? Mm -hmm. I mean, people do it. Pe people do it all the time. But like, I don't know. It's it's so hard to say with these kinds of spiritualists and yeah. demonologists and all of that. And it's not like you're not making money off of it because you are. They are. And they seem to have just run with their instincts on everything. Like their they first made up the field, like you their said. Their first thought was just it, and probably also was confirmation bias. And then it was the two of them yes. re reinforcing each other. They're gaining popularity, and you know mm -hmm. they maybe got a little bit of an ego, like to perform. Yes, um, you know Ed definitely was a ham and quite a showman. And this was a career. You know he wasn't going to make money selling his paintings and his sketches. At the end of the day, which I want to see those because yeah. I didn't know that about him. So I'm going to try to Google some of those and see how good or not so good his artwork <laughs> very pedestrian um it's so fascinating because i was just thinking of this yesterday i have discovery plus the app because i have a serious addiction to <laughs> veterinary shows <laughs> oh, <laughs> and, yeah. and say yes to the dread <laughs> okay but if you go to there's a whole section where it's like they they always have channels that just some shows are so popular, they get their own channel that just streams that all day. So like Property Brothers is one and mm. Say Yes to the Dressed is one. And I'm not even kidding you that six of them are different ghost hunter shows. It's an incredibly saturated marketplace. It's wild how many people watch that shit. Yes. And a lot of museums love to be profiled on these shows because there's such good 
publicity and they help of draw course. visitors, you know, as seen on Ghost Hunters. So many historic house museums love to capitalize on that. And yeah, there's so much content out there. It's I know. It's exhaustive. I find those shows sometimes just very tedious often. Like, you know, They're unless so not interesting to me. Yeah. Unless the narrators are really good or the story is presented really well. You know, but I don't care about the green, like, night vision screen and, Ugh. like, all the silly stuff. Like, it's just, you've seen it once, you've seen it a thousand times. Like, it, oh, it, he has red marks on his neck. I'm like, bitch, every time I scratch my neck, I got red marks. <laughs> <laughs> I'm white. <laughs> but, you know, and I meant to say this, too, is that this is related to the idea of urban exploration. Part of the same, the things go hand in hand. You know, sure. when you go, when you're an urban explorer, you're looking for something illicit or something scary or something off the beaten path, something forgotten and ghost hunting, which is a huge leisure activity. Yeah, you, know, you can true. buy this equipment online. It's not that expensive. It's and... not a difficult hobby to start. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, that's, true. that's a good yeah. point. It's really widespread. And, yeah. you know. For me, if it's a road to, you know, building an understanding of history, great. If it's a pathway to obscuring history, then, you know, we need to be critical of it. But it's yeah. all part of that marketplace. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Morbid Museum Podcast. Please remember to rate and subscribe to the Morbid Museum Podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. And please leave us a review. We have so enjoyed reading your feedback to this podcast project. And in the hopes of receiving ad sponsorship, please leave us a review on Apple. That helps us achieve that goal. Until next time, we'll see you for another gallery talk inside the Morbid Museum Podcast. <laughs>